Good morning, everyone. People here, I'm glad you could all be here. Thankful to see so many people here in the summer months. It's just great to get together. I'm thankful for this uh, building we have. It makes it super easy for us to gather throughout the year. We've got a wonderful parking lot over there so we can uh, just make it easy to come here from all over. So we're continuing in our Acts series today. Today we'll be in Acts chapter 8. And if you haven't been here or you haven't caught up, uh, I'm just going to give you a quick recap of where we are. So, so far in the book of Acts, we started with the beginning, naturally, and Jesus gave a final command to his disciples to spread the gospel throughout the world once the Holy Spirit comes. And then we see the Holy Spirit come at Pentecost. Some incredible things begin to happen. Uh, the apostles begin to preach. The church begins to grow. They're gathering together. They're sharing bread. They're evangelizing. They're caring for one another. We see this issue arise where there's this group of widows that's not being cared for as well as they would like. And so the apostles assign seven men called deacons to go and take care of them. And then one of these deacons, uh, a guy by the name of Stephen, uh, gets falsely convicted of blaspheming and is brought before the Sanhedrin, given a kind of mock trial and executed. And so it's right after that execution of Stephen where we're going to pick up today in Acts chapter 8. Before we get into that, I'm going to go ahead and pray. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity we have to come together and study your word. Thankful for the many blessings that you've given us through your church. Thankful for the many blessings you've given us individually. God, I ask that as we go through your word today, that you would impact us, that we would be um, encouraged and convicted by what it has for us. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. All right, so like I said, we'll be in Acts chapter 8. We're going to start at the top, and we'll just go bit by bit through it. So here we are, Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Saul agreed with putting him to death. That's Stephen, that deacon who was executed. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So the death of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 sparks this huge explosion of persecution against the church. We're seeing here that um, we see later in the book Saul is uh, given authority by the Sanhedrin to go and arrest uh, Christians, and Paul talks later in the book of Acts what exactly that looked like. He wasn't just dragging men and women out of their houses when he found them worshiping Jesus. He was dragging them off to prison, where oftentimes he would torture them in an effort to get them to uh, blaspheme against Jesus, to renounce the claim that Jesus was the Messiah, and, and in, in many cases, even execute them. So, there's just serious, serious persecution that's happening here. And, in, and the author Luke describes this persecution as Saul ravaging the church. Now, in the Greek, that word that's used for ravaging is used oftentimes to refer to like an animal attack. So if someone is ripped apart by a lion or a wild boar, or a wild boar breaks into your house or your garden and destroys everything, that was the same word they would use there. And it's a very visceral and bloody word. And it's a word that is accurately describing what is happening to the church. The church is being ravaged at this point. So how do they respond? Being dragged out of their homes, tortured, and oftentimes executed, how does the church respond? Well, let's look at the next verse and see how they respond. It says, so those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. 
Wow. Despite this incredible persecution, they're being dragged from their houses, they're being tortured, they're being executed. This persecution is so great that this church that we've seen, this beautiful, wonderful church that's gathering together, is sharing bread, caring for one another, they scatter from Jerusalem. And, and despite that scattering, despite this persecution, they continue to preach the word. That's unbelievable. Throughout this series, through the sermons and, and in, in our conversations and in our Bible studies, I've heard this question come up a lot. This question, why is the modern American church not like this church here in Acts? And I think this is another moment for this question. In a country where we are not being dragged from our homes, not being imprisoned, not being tortured, not being executed for our faith, we still fail so often to preach the word. So why is it that the first century church that we see here in Acts, while facing something that we can't even imagine, is doing better than we often do? And I think there's a lot of reasons for this, and I'd love to go through them all, but I'm committed to keeping a short sermon today. So instead, we're going to go through one reason that I really think that this early church is doing so well. And that's because I believe that they took the teachings of Jesus seriously. And there are many teachings of Jesus we could go through, but there's some specific ones that I think relate to this, that I want to go through, look at, and that I believe the early church was echoing to each other, was bouncing around their minds, that they were encouraging and convicting each other with. So let's, let's look at some of these teachings. So the first teaching from Jesus is that persecution is expected. Jesus talked about this in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. He said this, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. So here Jesus says, he says, if the world hates you, it's because they hated me. And he makes something very clear here. He says a servant is not greater than his master. And so I want to convict you of something, myself included in this conviction. And it's this. I've got it on the slide. I'm going to repeat it a couple times. If Jesus couldn't preach the gospel without being persecuted, you never will. If Jesus could not find a way to communicate the gospel without being persecuted, you never will. I hope that you believe that. Because despite how plainly Jesus lays this out, People today try so hard to find a way to make the gospel more winsome, to find a way to make the gospel nicer, to find a way to communicate the gospel without upsetting people, and that cannot happen. Because if Jesus couldn't do it, you cannot. And what often happens when these people try and find these ways of communicating the gospel is that they dilute the gospel. They take out the parts that people don't like. Oftentimes this dilution ends up with the gospel boiling down to three simple words. God loves you, and those are great words. That's a great message. But if that's the only message, it's a hollow one. What does God loves you 
tell you about God? What does God loves you tell you about your current state in the world? What does God loves you tell you about what you need to do? What does God loves you tell you about how you should treat others? Not very much. Instead of diluting the gospel, we need to be able to deliver the truth, to deliver all of it. How much more does God love you mean when it comes with the fact that God knows you? God knows everything you've done. He knows the worst things you've ever done, the worst things you've ever said, the worst things you've ever thought, no matter how hard you've tried to keep them secret. How much more powerful does the phrase, God loves you, sound when it comes with that knowledge? How much more powerful does the phrase, God loves you, sound when it comes with the realization that God is holy and perfect, that no one on this earth, no one in all of existence has more right to hate sin and to hate the sinners who commit it than God, yet that same God loves you. That's a gospel worth being persecuted for. That's the truth. And I believe that the early church knew that. They were committed to it, and they were aware of what it would do to them to deliver that gospel. And I hope that we are willing to do the same. The next teaching of Jesus that I think the early church was meditating on and believing is that persecution brings blessing. You see this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Jesus says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. And be glad and rejoice because your reward in heaven is great, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Every instance of persecution we face, every lie that's told about us, every wrong that's done to us for serving God is worth it. Because, our faith in share, because of our faith in sharing the gospel, we will see persecution in some degree in our lives. Maybe not the same persecution that this church is experiencing here in Acts 8, but we will see some. But that persecution is so greatly eclipsed by the blessing and, and glory of God's kingdom. And Paul said in Romans 8 that he considered the sufferings of this age, something which he knew a great deal about, to not even be worth comparing with the glory that is to come. He said that all the suffering that I have faced in this earth, all of the torturing, all of the imprisonment, all of the failed executions, they don't they're not even worth comparing with the glory that is to come of when he gets into God's presence, of when he enters heaven, of when he sees God face to face. And that same glory is waiting for us. And the same glory was waiting for the early church when they faced this persecution. And I believe that they encouraged each other. And I see this in Acts. You know, when the apostles are brought before the Sanhedrin back a few chapters ago, and they uh, rebuke the Sanhedrin and say, we're going to keep preaching about Jesus, the Sanhedrin has them beaten. And do you know what they did? They went on their way giving thanks because they counted themselves fortunate to be worthy of being persecuted for the name of Jesus. They saw it as a blessing. And I wish we would have that same mind shift here today. The next teaching of Jesus I want to look at is, is this. Jesus taught us to love our enemies. He said, love your enemies. Here in Matthew 5, verses 43 through 47, he said, 
You have heard it, that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even Gentiles do the same? Do you know why the early church was so keen on continuing to preach the gospel, even when it was killing them? Because they loved their enemies. Because they loved those around them, including their enemies, that's why Stephen preached this message to the Sanhedrin, despite it resulting in his death. That's why the apostles continued to preach, despite it resulting in their beatings. That's why the church continued to preach, despite it resulting in their scattering and further persecution, because they loved those who were persecuting them. This is a love that says, I don't care if you kill me, I want you to know about God's love for you. I want you to know about the opportunity for eternal life that you have in God. And it's a love that we should desperately pursue, that we should ask God for to give us in our hearts this love. And they also prayed for their enemies. We see this incredibly convicting and powerful moment when Stephen is executed. Right at the end as he's being stoned to death, which stoning, if you don't know what that is, that's where they'd line you up and then they would pick up stones and pelt you with stones until you died. Not a pleasant way to go. So as Stephen is being pelted with stones, he prays to God, he says, God, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I find it difficult to forgive someone who cuts me off in traffic. And Stephen, as he is being murdered, is praying for the forgiveness of his murderers, echoing the same words of Jesus who did the same thing on the cross, saying, Lord, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, as he's being crucified. This is, the, this is the kind of love that only comes from the Holy Spirit, that only comes from having the Holy Spirit in you and being changed by His will. And it's the kind of love that we need to have if we want to look like the early church. And the last teaching of Jesus that I think that really comforted the early church and should comfort us is that Christ wins. He said in John 16, he said, you will have suffering in this world, be courageous, I have conquered the world. Jesus once again echoing that teaching that you will have suffering, you will face persecution if you follow him. But be courageous because he has conquered the world. I think this is why the early church and why even Christians today have been able to face such difficult persecution because they know that Christ has conquered the world. And we don't have to worry. Whatever they do to you, whatever pain they cause you, whatever they take from you, they can't take away the eternal life you have in Christ. Christ wins. So with these teachings of Jesus in mind, let's look at the rest of the passage here and see how one particular person lives them out. So in the, in the next couple sections, we're going to look at one person who was scattered. This is a guy by the name of Philip. So the author Luke decides to focus in on one person in the scattering and see what his uh, ministry is. So let's, let's start looking at that, starting in Acts chapter 8, verse 5. It says this, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. 
For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was a great joy in that city. So this Philip goes down to Samaria to preach the gospel. And Philip, by the way, is most likely not Philip the apostle, but actually Philip the deacon, one of the deacons who we see named in Acts chapter 6. And he goes down to Samaria from Jerusalem. Uh, By the way, uh, Luke describes him as going down to Samaria from Jerusalem, despite Samaria being north of Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is higher in elevation than Samaria. So he's walking down a mountain path into Samaria. And we see in Philip's story the beginning of the fulfillment of Jesus's instruction at the top of Acts. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we've seen the church start in Jerusalem. Before this, the church was primarily just in Jerusalem, gathering together, meeting in the temple, meeting in each other's homes. And then this persecution drives them out of Jerusalem. And this persecution is actually what is driving the church to fulfill Jesus's commandment at the top of Acts that they would go from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and into the ends of the earth. And so we're seeing that start here. This is another instance of of something that God loves to do, where he takes what was meant for evil and works it for good. You know, that was in the bridge of the song that we sang first. It comes from uh, in Genesis when Joseph is talking to his family. Joseph was sold into slavery by his family, and he experienced incredible amounts of pain and suffering through that act. But because of that evil that they did against him, he was able to save his family and thus save the family that was promised by God to one day bring about the Messiah from starvation. And so he says to his brothers, what you have wrought for evil, God has wrought for good. God loves to do that, and he's doing it here with the church. What the Sanhedrin has meant for evil, God is working for good. This absolute evil persecution is leading to more people being saved. And it's actually very significant that a Jew like Philip would go to Samaria. And you may know a bit about the Jews and the Samaritans and why they didn't get along, uh, and that's because of the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is probably top 10 most preached on passages of the Bible. But I really want to give a a good, solid explanation of of what Samaria is, why the Jews and the Samaritans don't get along. So I'm going to march through a little bit of history here on the area of Samaria. So Samaria and Judea were two, not truly nations because they weren't sovereign, but two areas with independent people groups, independently minded people groups at least. And at one point, they were one nation, one nation of Israel. One nation of Israel that was founded when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, and then they took over Canaan, which was the promised land. And they divided up into their 12 tribes. They mostly kept themselves for a while and had some judges that helped to maintain some order, but that wasn't good enough for them, and they asked for a king. So they got a guy by the name of Saul, and he was a so-so king, started off pretty good, wound up pretty bad. Then they got a king, David. David was pretty good, did some great things for Israel. Then they got another king, Solomon, which was David's son, and he did some great things for Israel, built the temple, and Israel's feeling pretty good. 
Israel is in a pretty, Israel is in a pretty great place. One nation, they're, they're winning right now. They've just built their temple. God's presence is dwelling over the temple. And Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam takes over. And Rehoboam is not nearly as good as his father. And Rehoboam messes up some important negotiations. And all of a sudden, one nation splits into two. You have the northern ten tribes. They now call themselves Israel. And the southern two tribes of Benjamin and Judah still capitaled in Jerusalem, calling themselves Judah. And these two nations do not get along well. Imagine if during our civil war, the South had won and stayed its own country. We would not have gotten along very well, and there would have been many conflicts. The same thing is true here with Israel and Judah. Now, where the name Samaria comes from is the later capital of Israel, the northern Israel, uh, being in Samaria. Now, eventually, after many issues with each other, they finally get a bigger threat where another nation state comes and conquers the northern nation of Israel. It's the nation state, the empire of Assyria. Now, the empire of Assyria, they had a rather novel approach to empire building. What they would do is if they conquered you, they'd take a bunch of you out of the place where you lived and put you somewhere else. And then they'd take some other people they'd conquered and put you or put them where you came from. The theory behind it was if you move people around, they're not as tied to the land, they're less likely to rebel. And so because of this, there are a bunch of pagans that are brought in to this nation of Israel, and they begin to intermarry with the Hebrews who are left over there. And so the, the uh, Judeans, the Jews in the southern kingdom, see this as, a, as a, an abomination, a bastardization of the holy line of Jacob the holy line of Abraham, this, this chosen people group. And with that intermarriage came a mingling of religions. The people in Samaria are now blending not only their ethnicity, but they're blending their religion with pagan religions. And so these Samaritans begin to look less and less like the people to the south of them. And over time, the people south, the Judeans, are taken out of their nation, but they are allowed to go back so they can maintain some order of, of purity. So there's a, there's a lot going on here. So you have these both people return, the Samaritans and the Judeans, and they, you know, one will do something to the other, then the other will respond back and forth and back and forth for a few centuries until Jesus shows up. And at this time, the Jews and the Samaritans just hated each other. The Jews and the Samaritans, they had political tension, they had fought wars against each other, they had killed each other, they had land that the other wanted, they had ethnic tension, the Jews in the south saw the people in the north as impure, as these mixed race, this, this mongrel race of, of people, and they had religious tension where the religions didn't line up, and yet despite this, Jesus and his ministry still shows a heart for the Samaritans. He reveals himself first as the Messiah to a Samaritan woman at a well. Uh, he encourages his disciples to then go and evangelize to the Samaritans while he's there. And now, at the end of Jesus' ministry on earth, he is encouraged and commanded his church to go to the Samaritans. And so we see Philip doing this. Now, the amazing thing here is we see God restoring this lost group of Hebrews and at the same time, incorporating a bit of the Gentiles. The Samaritans are kind of your, your blended in-between from Jew to Gentile. And so we begin to see God's plan for the church here. God's plan is not to just keep this Jewish thing Jewish. Because you have to understand, at this point, the church is made up of nothing but Jews. This is a 
the word Christian doesn't even exist at this point. That was a, uh, an insulting term that the Romans used against, Christian, uh, against followers of Christianity later, and the Christians said, that's a great term. Little Christ, I love it. Thanks, I'll take it. And that's why we still use it today. But at this point, they mostly describe themselves as followers of the way, as in Jesus talking about being the way, the truth, and the life. They, they thought they were, uh, they, they, they were Jews following their Messiah. They were very Jewish. It was a Jewish thing. But God said, it's not just for you. He's fulfilling His promise He made to Abraham that He would bless Abraham's people and through Abraham bless the rest of the world. So we're beginning to see this take shape. This is incredible. Philip here in Samaria is beginning to to spread God's work, God's kingdom, outside of the Jewish people. This is practically unheard of. In, in all of the Old Testament, there are very, very few exceptions where people outside the, the lineage of Abraham get to be involved in God's work. And all of a sudden, it's happening. Philip's out here preaching to them, and, and they're, they're responding to it. They're engaged with it. And there's great joy because of the miracles and word that Philip is preaching. We're seeing God open up the church to everyone. And later on in Acts, I hate to spoil it in case you, you, know, you don't like spoilers, but later on in Acts, we'll see the, the circle get even wider, and the Gentiles are welcomed in. And the whole world is now welcomed into God's kingdom, welcomed into God's family. So this is incredible what's happening here in Samaria. And it gets even more incredible in the next passage. Let's go ahead and finish this out and read this last section here. Starting in verse 9, it says, A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least of them to the greatest, and they said, This man is called the great power of God. And they were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed. And after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. So in this, this last passage here, we see Philip, in, in the passage before too, we see Philip performing miracles and, and preaching the gospel. In this last passage that we just read, Philip runs into a man who is also performing something that looks like miracles. He's performing these great signs, a man by the name of Simon the Magician. So who is this Simon guy? What's his sorcery that he's practicing? So the passage says he practiced sorcery. And the Greek word used there to, for practice sorcery is, sorry, I have, to, I have to try and read it off of my phonetic spelling because it's Greek, magion, which comes from the root word magon, which is the word used to describe the magi from the east who brought Jesus gifts after his birth. It's the same word. So we have some link there to the Magi from the East, which is helpful because we know a little bit about the Magi. They, were, they would predict the future with astrology and reading omens. Um, they would practice alchemy, and they were generally just the people you'd go to to consult spiritual things. They had some esoteric, secret, hidden spiritual knowledge that people considered them wise in. So here, Simon might be just a simple charlatan who's using uh, sleight of hand and cunning to deceive people into thinking he's doing incredible things. 
or he might even have some demonic power on his side, or maybe even just a mixture of both. And as much as I would love to go down that rabbit trail and see what the Bible has to say about sorcery, we'll just set that aside and just leave it at this. Simon is doing something that's amazing these people. That much is incredibly clear. He's amazing them so much that they describe him in this way. They call him the great power of God, which is incredibly significant because the Samaritans, the Samaritans still had some, some inclination of, of Judaism. The Samaritans still had the, the Hebrew Old Testament. They still had the Torah. And in their translations in Aramaic, Aramaic they would translate the word often used for God, the Hebrew word El, uh, into the, uh, an Aramaic word that meant power. And so the phrase that they would often use in their Old Testament was great power to describe God. And so they're aligning this Simon guy by calling him the great power of God. They're saying he is connected with God. He might even be God's angel, the angel of the Lord that we see in the Old Testament. So this Simon guy is doing something incredible, so incredible they think he is related to God, maybe God, maybe God's angel. Massively powerful guy, massively important guy. We actually have some extra biblical information on Simon. There's an early church father by the name of Justin Martyr who wrote about Simon the magician and said that Simon had a statue of himself in Rome that had an inscription on it that said something along the lines of the great power of God, but in Latin. So this guy was a big deal. He was impressing a lot of people. And I say all this to show you just how powerful the gospel is. It's so powerful that people who've been experiencing this incredible sorcery of this man, whatever that may have been, so, much, so incredible, they're describing him as the great power of God. They experience that, and then Philip comes, preaches the word, and does some miracles, and they're like, this is the truth. Isn't that incredible? How true and powerful the gospel is that it can stand up against this man's incredible sorceries. It's so incredibly powerful and true that even the man Simon himself believes and is baptized. It's incredible. So this should encourage you because regardless of what the gospel runs up against, it will win. It is better, truer than any other religion, philosophy, or way of life that has ever existed. Another thing I want to point, here in this pa point out here in this passage are the miracles that Philip is doing and these miracle things, great signs that Simon is doing and show the purpose behind each of them. So there's a strong parallel here between Philip and Simon. We see them both doing incredible things. They're both amazing, the people. In the last passage, it says all the people were attentive to Simon. They listened to him because of these incredible miracles he's doing. Or sorry, attentive to Philip. In this passage, they're attentive. It's talking about how they used to be attentive to Simon because of his great miracles, his great signs. But there's a big difference between why each person is doing those, those signs. Simon was performing great signs so that people would call him great. Philip was doing these great signs so that people would know God is great. So here we see that parallel where Philip comes and brings truth. Philip comes and, and he uses those miracles to reveal the greatness and truth of the gospel. And you see Simon who had an empty way of life, an empty 
signs, empty miracles that were astounding and amazing, but didn't bring the hope that the gospel brings. So as I, as I close here, I, I want to ask again that question that I voiced at the top. Why isn't today's church like the church in the first century? And like I said, I think there are many reasons for that. Like one of them is that we are terrified of persecution. And we are blessed to live in the nation that we do. We truly do have freedom and rights and safety from serious persecution. And I think that's part, partly why we don't see that much persecution here in the States. But I think another reason is that we have declared of our own accord a spiritual ceasefire and believe it to be a spiritual peace. See, the difference between a ceasefire and a peace is a peace means the fighting's over, the war is done. A ceasefire means we're just going to stop fighting for now. And I think we've declared our own spiritual ceasefire because when you see the church go on the offensive, when you see the church take the gospel out into the world, you see it get hit back, even here in the States. If you've ever evangelized, you've probably experienced that. I remember there's a story that I learned about when I was studying for the sermon. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, I forget when, but at one point decided they, they really had a people group they wanted to reach. And this people group was Jews in Chicago. They wanted to mobilize the churches there. They wanted to, to uh, set up uh, mission trips so that they could get people to go and evangelize to Jews in Chicago because they wanted them to, to hear the gospel. And this resulted in massive pushback from many people. There were rabbis coming on talk shows talking about how oppressive this is, about how disgusting it is that Christians think their religion is so great, and why don't they, they just leave everybody alone? And everybody just attacking them from politicians to celebrities just saying, this is disgusting. Why don't these Christians just leave people alone? And it's because the church lives in a spiritual ceasefire here in America, and we think it's peace. When we don't go on the offensive, when we don't take the gospel out, people are generally okay with leaving us alone. But here's the thing, the enemy wins when we keep to ourselves. Doesn't matter what people follow, so long as it's not Christianity, the enemy wins. And that's why we need to take the gospel out to them, even if that means seeing spiritual warfare, seeing actual persecution in their lives. I think we also need to really meditate and, and consider those teachings of Jesus I highlighted back at the beginning. As you go out this week, I really want to encourage you to maybe reread them, look at them, pray about them, ask to be impacted by them, ask for that love that is willing to love enemies, ask for that love that's willing to pray for people as they are killing you, and be willing to take the gospel anywhere, even to the people you may hate. God opened up the church to everyone. He sent Jews into Samaria. You can take the gospel to someone you don't like. Remember the power of the gospel, that whatever it runs into, it's going to beat. The gospel is more true, more powerful, more impacting than any other way of life or religion or philosophy. So have confidence in that. And lastly, remember the point of sharing the word. The point is to magnify God. 
just like Philip doing those miracles and preaching. He wasn't doing it so that he would be recognized, so that he would elevate himself in position. He was doing it because he loved those he was reaching and he wanted them to know about God. So as we do all of this, keep that in mind. As you pursue others, as you take the gospel to them, even if it involves persecution, that you would do it for the glory of God. The band can go ahead and come back up as I pray. Father, we're thankful for your church. We're thankful for the just many blessings that you've given us. God, I'd ask that you'd give us strength even in persecution. Help us to endure what may come. Help us to remember that persecution will come if we follow you. And give us the strength to carry out a full gospel worth being persecuted for. God, help us to love our enemies, love them so much that we want them to hear the gospel even if it kills us. God, just mobilize your church here in the States that we would be excited to take the gospel to those we may not like, that we'd be excited to take the gospel out into the world and be hated for it. God, I ask that for myself as well. Lord, we're just thankful for your son, thankful that you have overcome, thankful that no matter what is done to us, we are secure in the eternal life that you have promised us. God, you are so good. Help us just to praise your name, to find joy in our worship here in this last set. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.